Sister Noreen, God bless you for taking us through that time of prayer. Hallelujah. We have said several times that when we gather to fellowship, it is our responsibility to prepare our hearts to receive the word of the Lord. Hallelujah. The Bible says that wherefore lay aside all filthiness. You have to do that. That is your responsibility. Lay aside all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness and receive with meekness the engrafted word. That is your responsibility. I find that sometimes we reverse the responsibilities uh, because between ourselves and God. The things that God would do, we want to do it. And the things we ought to do, we want God to do it. When it comes to the word of God, we have to prepare our hearts. God will not prepare our hearts for us. I will grant revelation. God will grant insight. God will grant clarity of thought. Hallelujah. Amen and amen. God will grant understanding. As a matter of fact, he has said that it is given unto us to know the mysteries of the kingdom. It is our birthright. He has given it. Amen and amen. He has given and poured his spirit of understanding upon us so that we may know, we may have fellowship with truth. That is his part. He has done it. Our part is to prepare our heart, condition our minds, and be ready in spirit to receive the engrafted word which is able to save our souls. Hallelujah. So we, we must always make sure that we are, our minds are alert and our spirits are ready when it comes to the word of God. And tonight, I trust and do believe that as we have gathered here, it is not just, you know, or, uh, uh, just another meeting that we are having, but truly our hearts are yearning uh, to receive the knowledge of God's truth as revealed in the scriptures. Amen and amen. I love something that Paul said to, concerning Timothy. He said, how do you have known the scriptures? Not just known them as historical material, but I've known the scriptures which are able to make you wise unto salvation. That should tell us that the primary purpose for the documentation of the scriptures was not to just provide a historical perspective to things that happened with the Israelites and all that. It's not just a piece of history, but it is meant to reveal the plan, purpose, provision of God and how that brings about salvation for mankind. The overarching theme of the text of Scripture, of all of Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, is salvation. Hallelujah. And by salvation, we mean Jesus Christ because he's the, he, he, he is the the bringer of salvation. The Bible says that the grace of God which brings salvation has appeared. Amen. If the theme of the entirety of the text of Scripture is salvation, who is the Savior? Jesus. That means the entirety of the text of Scripture concerns Christ and his work. You've heard me say several times, Jesus said, you search these scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. But these scriptures speak about me, and you will not come to me. Hallelujah. Eternal life is in a man. His name is Jesus. The Bible says that this is the record in First John chapter 5. God has given us eternal life. God has given mankind eternal life, a free gift. Where is this gift? He says, this life 
is in his son. He who has the son has this life. He who does not have the son of God does not have this life. Hallelujah. So as we probe the scriptures, our minds must not drift away. Like Timothy, we must understand that the primary purpose of the text of scripture is to make us wise in the matters of salvation. That is, give us the wisdom of God unto salvation. It is supposed to teach us the matters concerning salvation. And if it is doing so, it is teaching us concerning Jesus because he is, as I mentioned, the bringer of salvation. Hallelujah. Amen and amen. So when we study the word, we are very meticulous. You've heard me say that several times. We are very careful. We are very particular. We are very intentional and systematic in our study. We don't just you know, gloss over the text, take things from here and there to suit our own narratives. Hallelujah. We don't, we, we don't, we, we, we don't have you know, uh, prior ends we are trying to achieve. And by that, we find text of Scripture that will support that. No. We go into the text, open up our heart, and allow the text of Scripture, the Holy Spirit, to open our eyes to show us what God is saying, the revelation of God's purpose, the revelation of God's provision, the revelation of God's mind concerning us in the text. Hallelujah. So when you're reading things, even in the Old Testament, concerning the histories, uh, the, the histories presented in the Old Testament, you know that they are not mere histories. God is actually communicating his plan and his purpose. If God wanted to merely pen down history, he would have, you know, um, probably chosen historians who were commissioned, you know, academically commissioned historians to write the, the text of Scripture. But he chose men from all walks of life. He chose prophets. He chose laymen. He chose farmers. All these men, the Spirit of God working through them to communicate His plan and His purpose. So you must see beyond, hallelujah, just what is written when you read the story of David killing Goliath. You, you should see beyond the story to see the greater plan and purpose of God's salvation in that text. Amen and amen. And that is what, through God's grace, we'll be doing. Today, I'm going to be beginning a series which is really a study into the book of Romans. Hallelujah. The book of Romans is one of the epistles written by Paul, the apostle. Um, after the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Romans, Act comes in, and then Romans is next. Romans is placed as the first epistle of Paul in the chronology of the, the, the Bible, the way it is put down. Let me not say chronology and the arrangement. Hallelujah. But Romans was not the first epistle Paul wrote. Actually, Romans was written sometime in, say, A.D. 57, during the third missionary journey of Paul. You know, Paul had three missionary journeys. And when he wrote his text, the epistle, the letter to the church in Rome, he had actually not been to Rome prior to that. So he did not really know them personally. But he endeavored, he tried as much as possible to personalize the letter. He actually, you know, addressed almost 16 people in person by name. So Paul endeavored, tried as much as possible to personalize the letter, though he had not met the believers. If you read the book of Romans, you would find he expresses his real desire. And even in the book of Acts, 
his desire to actually visit with them and you know share the gospel with them. So Paul is the writer of the of, of the book of Romans or the author of the book of Romans, obviously by the Holy Ghost. And right from the very first text, uh, very first verse, the Bible says, "Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle." separated unto the gospel of God. So we see, indeed, Paul is indeed the writer of the book of Romans. Hallelujah. Why are we studying the book of Romans? We want to do a systematic study into it to really understand the mind of God concerning salvation for us. Amen and amen. Every book in the Bible concerns that. That is the golden thread of God's mind woven especially through all of the texts of Scripture. Amen and amen. And Romans is no different. It reveals a comp- the, the beauty uh, of the complete work of Christ. And that's what we are going to see. Who is the book of Romans addressed to? In Romans chapter number 1, verse 7, it says, To all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called saints, grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm just giving a quick overview before we delve in and do an in-depth study. Romans is addressed, Paul says, to all that be in Rome, beloved of God. Now, uh, historians actually um, are not very certain concerning who actually started a church in Rome. Uh, Some say, you know, Peter and Paul, but Peter never uh, went to Rome. And at the time Paul wrote his letter, Paul had not been to Rome. You know, so many, many scholars, biblical scholars say that the book of Rome, uh, the, the Roman church, was actually, you know, believers who had gathered themselves together and formed a strong congregation. Hallelujah. Uh, at the time of the persecution by uh, Emperor Nero, Christians were actually a great multitude in the city of Rome. Amen and amen. So though we don't know who actually started the church in Rome, it looks like there were smaller congregations of believers and meeting, you know, from house to house and, you know, having house fellowships. And they had a very strong bond. And Paul had desired always to visit with them, as I mentioned, and to share, you know, uh, a few things with them. Actually, if you read Romans chapter number one, if you have your Bibles, and I, I would say this to you as we are doing this in-depth study of the book of Romans, I would want you to have your Bible by your side, you have your notebook, and then we go up, we, as we are going step by step systematically, you are learning and you are putting down your notes, you are making references to the text of Scripture. Amen and amen. Look at me at Romans chapter, Romans chapter number 1 verse 9. Uh, Paul says, For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without season I make mention of you always in praise. Look at that. Paul had not seen these Romans before. He had heard of their faith. Hallelujah. And he says that he never ceased to make mention of them always in his prayers. Always in his prayers. Making requests, if by any means, verse 10, now at length I might have a prosperous journey by the will of God to come to you. So we see here, we see Paul's desire. Then look at it, verse 11. He even expresses it in his prayer. Says, For I long to see you, that I may impart unto you some spiritual gift, to the end that we may be established. And then he explains further, that is, that I may be comforted together with you by the mutual faith in both of you and me. You understand? So Paul had longed 
to fellowship in person with the Roman church. And in all his missionary journeys, he had been laboring in prayer. He says, without ceasing, I make mention of you always in my prayers. Paul had been laboring in prayer for them. He had actually visited Ephesus, Galatia, and, 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 and Philippi, many places in all his missionary journeys, but had not been to Rome yet. And historians actually say that the letter to the, the epistle to, to the Roman church was written in Corinth. When Paul was in Corinth, uh, towards the end of his third missionary journey, that's where he wrote, he wrote the letter. And you could actually see elements of that in the letter. We would, we would um, survey all of that as we go, we go further. So Paul had a desire to fellowship with the believers, making unceasing prayers for them. And his real desire was that through fellowshipping with them, he may impart something spiritual onto them. What was this spiritual gift that Paul wanted to actually impart unto them? This spiritual grace what Paul wanted to impart unto them. All he meant was that he would come in the fullness of the gospel to the Roman believers so that in participating in the truth of God's word, both of them would be mutually edified, that they would strengthen his faith and he would also strengthen their faith. How? Through the teaching of God's word. Paul was not thinking of going to have an impartation service like we think of, I come and I lay hands on you. That would be part of it, but that is not the entirety of it. When Paul was talking about impartation, he was talking about the teaching of the truth of God's word because that is what establishes believers. He says that to the end that ye may be established. Hallelujah. Remember Paul said to the Ephesian church, yeah, before he left Ephesus, when you read the book of Acts chapter number 20, Paul said to them that I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among the saints in light. You understand? So all throughout scripture we see that what brings establishment in the faith is the teaching of the word of God. Hallelujah. So when Paul is speaking about imparting something to you, some spiritual gift to you, he's talking about the teaching of God's word. Hallelujah. Fellowshipping in the word. Amen and amen. And as we do so on the line every Sunday, as I'm teaching, I am imparting spiritual, a spiritual gift unto you, if I may say. I'm using the term as used in the text of Scripture. But contextually, this impartation, which is a teaching, is meant to establish you in the faith. That is why as a believer, you should pay close attention to the teaching you are receiving. Teaching simply is doctrine. Amen and amen. The message. What is the message you are listening to? What is the message you are listening to? Your establishment in the faith comes through the message you receive. Amen and amen. If you're going to be built up in the, in the faith, it comes through the message you receive. That is why you should be careful what you listen to. You should be very careful what you listen to. As a matter of fact, your Christian practice is a result of the doctrine you have believed. That is why all throughout the letters of Paul, Ephesians, Galatians, Philippians, and even in, in Romans, in the, in the book of Romans, you would notice that Paul always spent the first few chapters dealing heavily with doctrine, correcting errors in doctrine. Then afterwards, he begins to speak on 
practical fleshing out of the doctrine that you have believed. Hallelujah. The practical outward living of the doctrine you have believed. So before you can teach someone or instruct somebody in righteousness, first there must be doctrine established. What do I mean by doctrine? Teaching. Teaching of what? The message of Christ. The Bible says that all scripture is given by the inspiration of God. And it is profitable for what doctrine? That is teaching. Didaskalia in the Greek. Didaskalia, teaching. Teaching. Doctrine, teaching. Hallelujah. And then out of this teaching comes what? Reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. Amen and amen. Men are instructed to do certain things because of the doctrine they have been taught. So you see men practicing certain things in the faith. It is not in vacuum. It is because of what they are believed. The teaching they are believed. Hallelujah. So it matters the doctrine you adhere to. It matters. You know, sometimes, you know, people talk about how, you know, doctrine is not important. You heard me saying this yet last week. You know what? Doctrine always brings division. Let's not talk about doctrine. You know, people are just tired. They are weary. They just want nice, encouraging words. You can make it. You are a champion. You are an eagle. You are going to be a Daniel. You are moving to the next level. Those are the things people want to hear, Pastor Sam. They are not really interested in all these doctrine, 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 doctrine things. You know, tell them something, you know, you know, they are, they are, they are, people have lost their jobs, people are struggling in their marriages and things. So you tell them something like, you know, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. God will come through for you. It's going to be okay. Hold on a little longer. All those kinds of wishy-washy nice things. Listen, <laughs> a believer's faith cannot be built that way. I said that to you last week. The foundation for establishment in the faith is teaching doctrine. And doctrine simply means teaching. The teaching of Christ. Understanding fully the work of Christ. And then, from there, the practice follows. Amen and amen. And last week I gave you examples of it. Hallelujah. We'll see more examples of that as we move forward. So, you can see that that is, you know, um, that is the pattern Scripture follows. You know, in all the epistles, even in the epistles of Peter, in the, in the letters of Peter and John, they follow the same thing. The number one enemy of the church is false doctrine. It's not the devil. The devil is defeated. The Bible says that he destroyed him who had the power of death. He made an open shore of him, triumphing over him in it. The number one enemy of the church is not the devil. The devil is defeated. Jesus said, when a strong man keeps his goods, he is safe. But when a stronger than he comes and overpowers him, he is able to plunder his goods. Jesus was the stronger than he. The strong man was the devil. He kept the whole world under sin and bondage. But when the stronger than he came, that was Jesus came, Jesus Christ. Through death, he destroyed him who had the power of death and plundered us from the hands of the enemy. Hallelujah. So the devil is defeated. He is defeated. The devil is defeated. All he has is deceptive trickery. All the devil has, let me repeat again, is deception, deceptive trickery. And how does he, how does he employ that in his service? He employs it in false doctrine. False doctrines are simply deceptions. 
he takes what is true and then he mangles it. He he you know he mixes it up or he he takes some out and then fixes it. That's what the devil does. Because if he can affect the thing you are hearing, he knows that that is going to affect the way you will live, what you believe about God. So it matters that we teach you the doctrine of Christ. In the doctrine of Christ is the revelation of God. Yesterday, last week, I said to you that our theology really is Christology. What the Bible says in Hebrews chapter number one, God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners, had spoken to us in times past by the prophets, had in these last days spoken to us in the person of his Son, whom he had appointed heir of all things. Jesus is the message of God to mankind. Hallelujah. He is the consummation of the promises and the prophecies of the prophets of old. Amen and amen. And when Jesus came, remember, uh, there was a voice when during the Mount of Transfiguration, First, at the baptism, the voice of the Lord came said concerning Jesus, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Then at the Mount of Transfiguration, he said, This is my beloved Son. He says, Hear ye him. God was saying, Listen, listen to him. He is the one the prophets and the law had been pointing to. He is the consummation of it all. Hear him. Listen to Jesus. He is my message to the world. He is my message of salvation. He is my message of redemption. He is my message of restoration. Hallelujah. To the world. The lamp of God that takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the message of God to the world. He says, hear him. Turn your attention to Jesus. So you can read the book of Hebrews. After the, after the apostle had laid out what we call the roll call of faith in Hebrews 11. Afterwards, in chapter 12, he says, looking away from all these people, unto who? Jesus. Because they have faith. The Bible says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for. Hebrews chapter 11, uh, verse 1. The substance of things so far, the evidence of things not seen. What faith is he talking about? Not your faith, but the faith of the fathers. And he, he begins to go through from all the way from Adam down all the way to John the Baptist. Hallelujah. He goes through the patriarchs of old and he shows how that their faith was in substance, shadows, promises, but they did not have the reality. So the Bible says that in the, at the end of Hebrews 11, it says, These all died in faith, having received not the promise. What they hoped for, they did not receive yet. But they had the substance for it. So they represented what they were hoping for, the Christ they were hoping to come in substance, in shadows. Hallelujah. In figures. Hallelujah. And Hebrews details it for us. Afterwards, Jesus says, uh, Hebrews says, looking away, looking away from all these patriarchs, from David, from, from Samson, from Solomon, from Abraham. Hallelujah. Looking away from all these people, looking away from the temple, from angels, from the sacrifices, from the ordinances, unto Jesus. Hallelujah. Jesus is the culmination of all the practices under the law. He is the altar. He is the sin offering. He is the wave offering. 
He is the bent of sin. Hallelujah. He is the high priest himself. He is the tabernacle himself. Hallelujah. Another time we'll do a study of that and we'll see it. Amen and amen. He is the reality, the substance of everything that they hope for Jesus was in. So look away from all these people. Unto Jesus. That is why you should never say, I dare to be a Daniel. When you are Christ now. Do you know you are Christ now? You are Christ to your world, not Daniel to your world. See, that is why you must even be, we must even be careful when we are doing things like character study. I know it is one of the things that we teach. Sometimes we teach that, you know, how to study the Bible. You can do character study. So you take Ruth, you study her life, and then you pick good things from her life, and then you see her weaknesses and you advise yourself about it. But that's actually a very weak way of studying the Word. Hallelujah. The only time you should look into the lives of these people is in the areas where they reflect Christ. That's it. That is why all of them, without fail, the Bible reveals both their strength and their weakness so that your eye is not set on them. The Bible says that they without us should not be made perfect. Mm. We have it better than David had. We have it better than Abraham had. Even John the Baptist, who saw Jesus face to face and was able to actually point to him and say, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Bible says that he is the least in the kingdom of God. Hallelujah. But he's greater than all the prophets that came before him. He's greater than Abraham. He's greater than Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel as it pertains to the coming of the Messiah. But the Bible says he's the least in the kingdom. He's the least in the kingdom. Why is it so? Because we have the real deal. We are Christ to our world. Amen and amen. Your goal must be to reflect Christ in all you do. Your goal must be to reflect Christ in your talk and in your walk. Amen and amen. Is somebody hearing me tonight? Amen. Hallelujah. You understand it? Jesus. Jesus. You see, Anytime you study the word very well, contextually, properly, the conclusion is Christ. <laughs> the end of the matter is always Christ, unless you've not studied well. But you see, we have this tendency where we want to always put, project ourselves and our situation into the text of Scripture. So we made it about us. For example, we'll read the story of David. Very popular story, David killing Goliath, and we are looking at it. Immediately, we project ourselves, okay, I am David, and then Goliath is my problem. And, you know, I'm going to overcome my problem so I can move to the next level. Very nice thing, but you are failing to actually see what God is really trying to communicate through that historical event. He was actually trying to communicate the victory of Christ over sin. How that a man was defying the people of God and had held them totally in bondage. They could actually do nothing. They were living in total fear of Goliath. What is Goliath in our lives? Sin. Man was bound to sin and death and could, was helpless, totally helpless, until David came and said, Who is this man who is defying the armies of the Lord? This uncircumcised Philistine. In that act of David overcoming Goliath, for the children of Israel, 
The children of Israel did not go to battle. They did not do anything. They just stood and watched God's salvation through David in the same way. All of mankind stands and watch God's salvation through Jesus. Jesus conquering that Goliath that was in our life. What is that Goliath? Sin and death. Hallelujah. Amen and amen. You see it. So instead of projecting yourselves in ourselves in there, let us see what God is actually trying to communicate. Because as we mentioned, all of Scripture reveals salvation and for that matter, Christ. Hallelujah. Amen and amen. But we are sometimes so self-centered that we want to see ourselves in all those. No. It's about Jesus. And then who we are in him now will come to that. Hallelujah. So we see it. Paul longed, he longed, he longed to visit with the with, with, with the Romans, you know, as we have we have seen here. He longed for that. What is the importance of the epistle of of, of uh, the epistle to the Romans? Romans actually Many biblical scholars say is one of the best or clearest systematic presentation of Christian doctrine. You know, if you study the Book of Romans, like the other epistles of Paul, he would always deal with issues in that church. For example, the Church of Corinth, they had a lot of issues. Paul had to go through and deal with each of the issues. They had actually written a letter to Paul asking so many questions. Should women cover their hair, this, 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 and all those things? Paul takes time to systematically answer those questions. And he deals with their misunderstanding concerning spiritual gifts. In the same way, when he wrote to the church in Galatians, they were falling back into the law. And then Paul had to deal with them and said, Oh, foolish Galatians, having begun in the spirit, you now want to be made perfect in the, with the law? Did you receive the spirit by the works of the law or by faith? You know, Paul was dealing with you know, errors in their thinking and all that. The same with Philippians and you know First Thessalonians, you know Second Thessalonians, when the believers were unsettled concerning the resurrection of the saints, Paul, you know, writes to really clarify that, you know, by establishing and showing them what the doctrine of Christ concerning that really is. But not so really with the Book of Romans, because Paul, as we mentioned, had really did not know them very well. He had not visited them before, though he longed to visit with them. So, I think Paul was trying to establish a doctrinal foundation for his relationship with them. So Paul takes time to systematically lay down and lay out the salvation that has occurred in Christ Jesus. So there's something we call the roadmap of Romans to salvation. That is what theologians have coined and said. But Rome, the, book, the, the book of Romans is, is, is the clearest, most systematic presentation of Christian doctrine. Paul begins by surveying the, 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 the human condition, which is you know, our sinfulness, and how that is observable throughout all the world. It is so plain. And you know, Paul writing from the city of Corinth. Corinth was a cosmopolitan city in, in Greece at that time. And all manner and kinds of people were there. You could see people were involved in idolatry, sexual immorality. People were involved in all kinds of business and commerce and all those kinds of things. People from all walks of life and all that and involved in all kinds of things. Hallelujah. And you could, Paul, you know, knew firsthand based on those experiences. You know, the human condition of sin and how it plagues that. Paul surveys that and then he segues into revealing what God has done and made available. That is justification 
by faith in Christ. And then he shows how that God had even before time preached this gospel of justification by faith to Abraham. And we'll see that. Hallelujah. You know, then he goes on to talk about, you know, what it means really to be saved. You know, and how we are justified by faith. Amen and amen. Then he goes on to even explain further. Paul spends 11 chapters dealing with the doctrines of salvation, of righteousness through faith, justification. He deals with all those things. Then in the last five chapters, he deals with the practical application of the doctrines that he had explained. So Romans is a very important book. And I believe that as we, we delve deep in depthly to study the book, the book of or, or the book of Romans, our faith will really be established. Just like Paul was saying, I long to come to you that to the end that you may be established. That the goal of our study is that we will be properly be established in the doctrines of Christ, so that our practice that follows from our, that understanding will be consistent with the truth of God's word. Amen and amen. Sometimes we do things we think. It is acceptable to God, but actually God will have none of it. Uh, Jesus says something. He says, you do err because you don't know the scriptures. Then he continued on to say something very important. He says, you teach for doctrine the commandment of men. He says that you worship, but you worship in vain. Teaching for doctrine the commandment of men. That means our worship stems from the doctrine we are believed. And we would understand as we, as we delve deep. I, 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 the reason I'm so excited about this is it makes things so clear. Certain things we didn't do as acts of worship, we recognize that God will have nothing to do with those things. And we begin to see what real worship really is like. Hallelujah. <laughs> Somebody said, you know, praises is fast songs. Worship is slow, so it has nothing to do with that. Hallelujah. We begin to see all that. So Romans is a very uh, a very important book. The great theme that is running through the entire book of Romans is the revelation of God's righteousness in his plan for salvation. Romans chapter number 1, reading from verse 16 to 17, if you so please. Turn with me there. Let's read. Paul says, for I am not ashamed what has become the mantra and, you know, the motto for many believers, which is actually wonderful. Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written. They just shall live by faith. This is like, these two, two verses really capture the entire theme of the book of Romans. And actually the entire theme of Christian doctrine. Amen and amen. And Paul fleshes mm-hmm. it out, you know, explaining it further in the rest of the text. We are going to look at that. So as I mentioned, he spends 11 chapters dealing with doctrine, five chapters dealing with practical uh, instruction and application of what we have learned. Amen and amen. So if you're so pleased, we have a few minutes uh, left before we go today. Today I was just doing an overview. We can begin Romans chapter number 1, verse 1, see where we can get to, and we'll pick up next week. So for the subsequent week coming, we are dealing with 
the book of uh, of Romans. We are doing an in-depth study. Uh, so I want you to always prepare yourself as you come for encounter. That's where we are. It's a study. When you come for uh, uh, encounter meetings or our fellowship meetings on Sunday, uh, you have come to a teaching. Hallelujah. Let your mindset be prepared that way. You have been trained in the Word of God. Hallelujah. You have been trained in the Word of God. There is, a, there is this version of Christianity that has been passed down to us in our generation that is really messing us up seriously. You know, sometimes we go to church, and then after we sing a few songs, we dim the lights, then all of a sudden, somebody will just appear on the stage and the light will come. Then they just shout! Then the people are shouting, jumping up and down. And <laughs> you don't know whether you're in a concert or you are. You don't know even where you are. Hallelujah. What brings about the essence of the church is not performance and concert-like things. It is the study of the scriptures. If you take the Bible from church, it is no longer a church. It could as well be a club. The main goal reason you go to church is to study the word, study the word. Sunday service is Bible study. That is what it ought to be. But we've relegated that to Wednesday or some midweek midweek service we call Bible study. And that one is maybe, you know, an hour or two. Then Sunday we get busy about so many things and we spend only thirty minutes in the word. We call it sermonette. Quick, quick, give me, you know, power shots. And that's all. We don't have time for the Word of God. But faith generation also. Hallelujah. We are systematically delving into the Word of God, taking time, painstakingly, meticulously into the Word. I want you to prepare your mind for that. Hallelujah. Paul taught and taught and taught until Eutychus fell asleep and fell from the window. He fell down and died. Paul went and raised him up again, came back and continued teaching. Amen and amen. Uh, I'm longing for the days where we'll go for uh, uh, retreats and we have all nights in the world. Amen and amen. Next year, oh goodness, it's going to be wonderful. Just like we have all night prayer, all nights in the world. Imagine, all night in the word of God. How glorious that would be. Hallelujah. Prepare your mind for that. Amen yeah. and amen. So, let, let's begin. Romans chapter number 1, verse 1. Look at Paul. There's Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God. There's a lot to unpack here. Paul, first of all, identifies himself as a servant of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. A servant of Jesus. Now, that's very important. The word servant here is from the Greek word duolos, duolos, which literally means a slave, but slave in context. A bond man. Hallelujah. A bond man. Uh, that is a voluntary bond man. Hallelujah. It's, it, it, it comes from the Jewish idea of, you know, a slave who has been pardoned to go. He's been released and made free. He's a free man. But because of the love for his master, he decides to bind himself to his master in service. He's a bond man. Hallelujah. So it's a voluntary binding of himself to the master in service. And Paul identifies himself as such. That is why he said things like, woe is me if I preach not the gospel. Because he's born to Christ that way. He identifies. He, you see, this reveals Paul's understanding of what ministry really is. 
Hallelujah. A servant of Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. Though we are sons of God, mm. as it pertains to the gospel work, the ministry work, we are servants of Jesus Christ. Born servants of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. He says, called an apostle or called to be an apostle. Who did this calling? The man he is born there to, that is Christ Jesus himself. Amen and amen. Remember in the book of Ephesians, the Bible says that when Jesus ascended on high, he gave gifts unto men. Jesus gave the gifts unto men. Then he says he gave some apostles, some prophets, some teachers, some pastors. And as a matter of truth, there's nothing in the scriptures that shows that apostles are higher than prophets or prophets are higher than teachers, or teachers are higher than pastors, or anything, or pastors are higher than apostles. The human desire for hierarchy is what has brought all this confusion in the church. So in our generation, everybody wants to be an apostle and a prophet because they think those are the higher offices. No. Hallelujah. Jesus made no distinction in terms of rank. Amen and amen. And suddenly the apostles did not do any of that. They understood that each one of them had their calling by Christ. It was a spiritual administration in the body of Christ given unto them. And Paul was an apostle. An apostle from the Greek word apostolos, which means a delegate, an ambassador of Christ. Somebody commissioned by Christ. You see, you're calling to me. Every believer, listen to this very well. Every believer is called into ministry. The Bible says he has committed unto us the ministry of reconciliation. So you have a ministry. Every believer is called into ministry. Hallelujah. But as it pertains to the administrative offices in the body of Christ, that is the apostleship, the pastoralship, the prophet's, the prophet's office, and the evangelist office, those are appointed by Christ. You must be commissioned by Christ in there because those specific administrative offices are meant to equip the believers for the work of the ministry. So believers have the work of the ministry to do already. But these offices are meant to equip. Christ himself grants graces to these offices in order to equip. You are not made an apostle so that you people will see that you are borrowed. You are not made a prophet so that you be, you know, is your is your means of making money. No, that's not the point of it. You are not made a pastor for superstardom. No, it is to equip believers for the work of the ministry. The proof of any man of any any anybody functioning in any of these administrative offices are the people he equips for the work of the ministry. Hallelujah. That means that. Our work is to train believers. Train believers. Equip them. How do we equip them? With the word of God. That means all these offices must be able to teach the word of God. A prophet's role is not to prophesy. It's to teach the whole counsel of God. Listen to me very well. A prophet, an apostle, a pastor, a pastor, teacher, an evangelist, your role is to teach the whole counsel of God and by so doing, equip the believers for the work of the ministry. Now as you do so, the giftings of the Spirit are at your disposal to help you in this endeavor. Hallelujah. Amen and amen. So you read in the book of um, 
Now, First Corinthians chapter number twelve verse five. The Bible says, and there are differences of administrations by the same Lord. First, it says there are diversities of gifts. He says, by the same Spirit. It is the Spirit that gives the gifts. But when it comes to the administrations, it is Christ who calls you into those offices. Then he says, there are also diversities of operations by the same God who works in all. Hallelujah. The Bible says that it is God who works in you both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. Amen and amen. So to stand in any of these fivefold offices is to be a literal delegate of Christ in that sense of equipping the believers for the work of the ministry. There is a purpose to it. And Paul knew that. He understood the apostolate. He understood the mission, the, 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 the calling of Christ in that regard. And he identified himself always, always as such. He says, I'm a servant of Christ, called to be an apostle. Then he says, separated unto the gospel of God. This is very important. Paul identified that he'd been separated unto the gospel of God. That word separated is from the Greek word aphorizo. That means to sever and appoint. So Paul is saying that my ties with the old person that I am has been severed by Christ. And I've been appointed unto a new role as it pertains to the gospel of God. Amen and amen. We read in um, Acts chapter number 13, verse 2, the Bible says, As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, Separate, that is aphorizo, separate me, Barnabas and Saul, at the time Paul was called Saul before his name was changed, for the work whereunto had called them. You understand? And Paul says that God who separated me from my mother's womb, not that from his mother's womb he had God has separated, what it simply means is that God separated him from his former life into this new role as a believer in the apostolate. Hallelujah. Amen and amen. And then he says, unto the gospel of God. Don't let that confuse you so much. Sometimes you hear in the text of scripture, you see the gospel of Christ, the gospel of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Then he says the gospel of God in this context. Sometimes Paul says, my gospel. What is that? Are they different things? No. The gospel, gospel simply means good news. In this context, as Paul says, gospel of God, he, say, he uses that phrase for a particular reason, and I'll show you. As we said, the word gospel comes from the Greek word euangelion. euangelion. Now, euangelion means good news, and it comes from, actually, the Greek practice of when warriors go to war, and they win the war, they sent a messenger back into the city to announce the victory to the people, and the people begin to rejoice. They did not go to the war. The soldiers went to the war, but they rejoice as though the victory is theirs because truly it is theirs. Hallelujah. The soldiers fought on their behalf. They did not have to fight. But the messenger brings back the good news of the victory won on the battlefront. In the same way, the gospel is good news. Hallelujah. Jesus won the victory for us. Amen and amen. Hallelujah. And we partake of the victory that Christ has won. And we have been made emissaries of this good news, of this evangelion. So we go about proclaiming as messengers telling people of the victory Christ has won over sin and death so that they may be saved and they can also share in the benefits and blessings of this victory. This is what 
our role as evangelists really is all about. Hallelujah. Now, but Paul says the gospel of God, this good news, he, he, he refers to it in this context as it pertains to God. Now, look at this. We are going to explain that. He says, gospel of God, which he promised in verse 2, which he promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So you see it, this good news of what God is about to do in Christ was promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. That means that in the Old Testament, the gospel is clearly preached. Mm-hmm. Clearly preached in the Old Testament. By who? God. From Genesis to Malachi, God was preaching the gospel of grace. Hallelujah. So that's why I keep telling people, it's not as if God used to be, you know, a terrible person, a terrible man upstairs there. He gets angry easily at the least provocation. Then all of a sudden Jesus came and placated him and, you know, he's now grace, 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 grace. No, 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 no. God has always been gracious. Right from Genesis to Malachi, he was preaching through the prophecies of the prophets, the promises of the prophets, the shadows of the law. He was preaching the gospel of his grace. Hallelujah. That is why Paul refers to us, the gospel of God, which he had promised afore. He promised it. Afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Amen and amen. Concerning his son Jesus, our Lord. You see it. This message he promised afore was concerning his son Jesus, our Lord. The gospel primarily concerns Jesus. The gospel God preached in the Old Testament concerned his son Jesus and what he would do. That is why we keep saying, when you read the Old Testament, you must see Jesus. You must see the work of Christ. Stop inserting yourself in there like that. First, before you do that, first, let your eyes be open to see Christ and his work. Hallelujah. Amen and amen. Then you begin to see the nature of God. Even the, the Bible says that he preached this good news even before the foundation of God, the world. God preached the gospel. Let's see examples of that before we go. I know my time is up. Let's see examples of that before we go. Let's go to Genesis chapter number 3, verse 7. Let's go to Genesis. Right at the fall, we see God preaching the gospel. Genesis chapter number 3, 7 to 21. Hallelujah. We know the background story. Um, Eve had eaten the fruit which God asked him not to eat. He gave it to, uh, the Bible says he gave it to his, her wife, her, her husband, Adam. Adam ate it. And their eyes were open and they realized they were naked and they hid from God. And when God came, God began to tell them the consequence of what they had done. People say that God cursed them. You know, God cursed the serpent. God cursed Adam, God cursed him. Remember this, God does not curse. God is altogether good. The Bible says that every good and perfect gift cometh from the Father of light. We saw that last week. In whom there is no variableness, no shadow due to turning. God is not fickle. He doesn't hold between evil and good. Today he'll do evil, tomorrow he'll do good. Today he'll curse and tomorrow he'll bless. That is not who God is. God is altogether good. He never curses. He only blesses. That is why he said to you, when Jesus came, he said, bless those who persecute you and curse them not. 
so that you indeed show yourself to be sons of your father. If God curses men, Jesus would have said to us to curse men. So all your prayers of curses, 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 cursing people left and right and on. Listen, you have to stop it. They are demonic prayers. Hallelujah. They are demonic prayers. Amen and amen. Hallelujah. God is altogether good. How do we know that? Look at Jesus. God is revealed in Christ. If you are confused about who God is, look at Jesus. The problem with people is they read the Old Testament and you see, they are not able to really see the proper nature of God because they are not reading through the lens of Christ. These Old Testament people, I, I said to you that Scripture is recorded accurately for us. But as to whether some of the things written are really true or not is different. Statements made are not necessarily true. You must understand that they are accurate, but as to whether it's truth, is based on the nature of God. Hallelujah. You understand that? God is altogether good. Nothing evil comes mm-hmm. from him. I said nothing evil comes from him. The Bible says that there is no darkness in him. He is light. There is no darkness in him. Amen and amen. Hallelujah. You understand that? So you must be settled in your mind. So when you see evil, don't start thinking, is it God, is it not God? No. Last week I showed you the conception of evil and its manifestation. Right from the conception to its manifestation, you don't see God in there. The Bible says that a man is tempted when he's drawn of his own lust. And when lust has conceived, he gives birth. And when sin has conceived, and gives birth, he gives birth to death. From the conception to the end, from its conception to manifestation, you don't see God in there. It's only man and his own last. Hallelujah. The reason evil is in the world is not because of God. It's because of man. Amen and amen. God is not. He's altogether good. So in the garden, God was not cursing Adam and Eve. He was simply telling them the consequences of what they had done. Because he said to them, the day you eat of this fruit, you will die. That is what you will suffer. So now he was explaining to them what he meant by that. And listen, this thing that you've done, okay, this is the consequence you are now going to face. Hallelujah. He was showing them. But as he was saying that to them, he revealed man to Koshaya Dalabase. He preached the gospel to them. Listen to verse 15, Genesis chapter number 3, verse 15. When he was speaking to uh, the serpent, we know who the serpent is. I've said to you, in the garden, there was nothing like a snake slithering around. That is a metaphor that shows that is showing you the devil. Hallelujah. Animals don't come talking to you to tempt you to sin. Every temptation is in your mind. Amen. How many of you a cat appeared to you and said to you, go and steal money from your boss? Or a housefly spoke to you that disrespect your husband, disrespect your wife, and all those kind of go and commit adultery and all those things? How many of you a rat appeared to you at night? <laughs> Maybe from the cartoons you've been watching. <laughs> Hallelujah. So listen to what God says in verse 50. He says, I will put enmity between your offspring and her offspring. Her offspring will attack your head, that is, bruise your head, and you will strike his heel. Hallelujah. What was this referring to? God was preaching the gospel to Adam and Eve. And even to the serpent, that is Satan, he was telling him, but listen, you're going to strike the seed, you're going to strike the heel of the seed 
of the woman, but he will bruise your head. God was telling them a time is coming, the seed of the, and the seed of the woman is Christ. We see that in the New Testament. He bruised the head of the serpent. When, you, when we talk about bruising the head of the serpent, it means that you've crushed him underfoot, destroyed him totally. That's what the Bible says. Through death, he destroyed him who had the power of death. But Satan struck his heel, struck his knee. He killed him. The Bible says, if the princes of this world had known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Satan thought he had won by leading the children of men to kill Jesus. But little did he know that it all fell into the plan of God. Hallelujah. And that through death, Jesus would destroy him. Hallelujah. Right there in Genesis, right after the sin, God was preaching the gospel to them of what Jesus will come and do. Amen and amen. Hallelujah. Now, when they fell, the Bible says that they hid themselves from the presence of God and they sowed fig leaves to cover their nakedness. In the Bible, when it speaks of nakedness, it speaks of two things. You know, nakedness contextually speaks of two things. That is transparency and being open. And then it also speaks of unrighteousness. Hallelujah. So to cover their nakedness, listen this, they sowed fig leaves. Man-made religion always seeks to find its own way to be righteous. But as we'll see in the book of Romans, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. So what did God do? Right there in Genesis chapter number 15, uh, chapter number 3, verse 21. Go to verse 21. See what God did. They had sold fig leaves to cover their nakedness, but God did something better. Hallelujah. The Bible says that the Lord God made garments from skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. You understand? God himself covered their nakedness. He's trying to tell them that through the seed of the woman, I'm going to cover your nakedness. And is that not what Christ has done? He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God through faith. Hallelujah. Amen and amen. We are clothed in Christ's righteousness. God has clothed us with Christ's righteousness. Not by our own righteousness. Not by works of righteousness which we have done. But according to his mercy, he said, hallelujah. You cannot. Listen, the gospel reveals God's righteousness. Not man's righteousness. It reveals God's righteousness. Hallelujah. Man tried to sow fig leaves to cover his nakedness. But God has something better. You know, the Bible says concerning the children of Israel, they being ignorant of what God had done, went about establishing their own righteousness. And in our day, a lot of people are ignorant of the righteousness of God, who is Christ, and are going about trying to establish their own righteousness. Even believers who are saved, after they are saved, they want to go about establishing their own righteousness instead of resting in their, in their spiritual righteousness, who is Christ Jesus. He is your covering. He is your righteousness. Hallelujah. You see, right in Genesis, we see the gospel preached. And it will take, I mean, take a whole year for me to go through the entire Old Testament to show you how the God preached the gospel throughout the Old Testament. Hallelujah. But because of time, we'll stop here. You see how he preached the gospel to Abraham. He preached the gospel in the, in the life of the Israelites in the, in when, they were, when they crossed the Red Sea when they put blood on their doorposts, 
in the life of Noah, in the life of all the patriarchs of old, you see God, the golden thread of the gospel is expertly woven through. God was preaching the good news of what Christ will come and do throughout the Old Testament. Hallelujah. So if you miss it, you've missed the big picture where you read the Old Testament. That is why Paul says in Romans chapter number one, you know, as we read here, as we are seeing here, that he has been separated unto the unto the gospel of God, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. You see, he had promised afore in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Oh, why don't you lift up your voice and begin to give God praise. Give God praise. Thank God. Thank God.